So anyway, that should look familiar to a lot of us. Uh, some of us were in the show. Some of us saw the show you know, about a month ago. We all really enjoyed it. And if you didn't get a chance to see it, it's a takeoff on the story of the Old Testament Joseph, um, the Joseph who was loved by his father Jacob, who got the fancy coat, and then his brothers sold him into slavery, and he went to Egypt. And it's, it's kind of a, a modernized and somewhat spoofed version of the story with really a lot of allusions to the 60s and 70s when the show was actually written. And so Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is actually portrayed as Elvis, king of rock and roll. And our own Jim Pierce played that role. And, and if you read the program it, in his biographical sketch, it talked about Jim putting on his inner Elvis. And, and, and he did a great job of impersonating Elvis, um, you know, at least to me, I'm not great Elvis expert, but, uh, you know, he had the moves and he had the look, and um, so, so he did a great job with that. Today in Romans um, 13, Paul calls us, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul is encouraging us to put on Jesus in much the same way that Jim put on Elvis, we're to strive to be so much like him that when people see us, they see Jesus in us. Remember back in Romans 8, Paul said, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. So if we're being conformed to the image of Jesus and to the watching world, we're looking more and more like Jesus. And that's not that we're all becoming Middle Eastern males, but that in character, we're full of grace and truth the way Jesus was. That we love sacrificially the way Jesus does. That we obey the Father the way Jesus does. Now, I don't know if Jim actually had an inner Elvis to put on. Um, I, I tend to doubt it. But as Christians, we actually do have an inner Jesus to put on. Or more accurately, we have the Holy Spirit within us to put on. In 2 Timothy, Paul said, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And in 1 Corinthians, he said, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So the Holy Spirit is within us, and his job is to be our inner Jesus, to reveal Jesus to us so that we can reveal Jesus to a world that's watching around us. On the evening before his arrest, Jesus told his disciples, and this actually covers two chapters, three chapters in John, and I'm not going to read it all. I just took some highlights out of it. But Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your, your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's going to teach you about me. He's going to remind you about me. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He's going to tell you about me. The Holy Spirit within you is going to be telling you about me, about Jesus. And later, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this Holy Spirit living within us is going to take aspects of Jesus. What is Jesus? His character. And is going to reveal it to us. He's going to help us to portray him well to a watching world. We have within us the third member of the Trinity who's constantly speaking to our hearts about Jesus. Who will tell us what's true and empower us to live like children of God. And we don't just have the Holy Spirit speaking to us but the Lord is actually actively working in us to make us more like Jesus. Paul said in Romans 8 again, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And in Philippians he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So God is at work in us, doing a good work to make us more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is revealing truth to us and is working to transform us literally from the inside out. And he's a good teacher. He knows what we're capable of and he doesn't give us too much. Like Jesus said to his disciples, you know, you can't handle all this right now, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he'll fill you in as you're able. He'll he'll, um, share more of me with you. He's bringing us into situations to work his character into us. And he knows what we can handle. So he brings us to the next step, uh, which we might think is too hard, but he gets us through it. And then he takes us to the next one and the next one to work his character into us. It's primarily his work, but Paul also says we have the privilege of working with him. We're called to actively participate in it as well. Remember the command was put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an active tense. It's, it's an action verb. We are to engage in it. We're to strive to imitate him. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul commanded, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now that to me is a really bold statement. He's calling people, imitate me, because if you do, you'll be imitating Jesus. I'm not going to make that statement here, but, but you know, Look for godly people to imitate and imitate their character. Paul also commanded us to imitate God, to be like Jesus. He said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So be imitators of God. In Romans 12, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, all of these verses are giving us commands, giving us active verbs that we're to actively engage in being like Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is at work within us. God is at work within us. But we're to exert our own effort as well to become more and more like him. Um, He has the plan, but we cooperate with him in that process. How do we do that? What does it take to act like Jesus? Um, I'm guessing if you ask Jim, what does it take to act like Elvis? 
he'd say, you have to get inside his head. You have to know how Elvis would have acted, how Elvis would have thought. And, and, you know, for a play where there's just a few brief scenes, you can get the choreographer to tell you, well, this is what you ought to do now. But they know Elvis, and they, you know, they give you the moves to make. And you just have a few minutes to keep it together. But have you ever been to a live historical reenactment? And, and if there's really good reenactors, they speak and act basically entirely within the context of their historical framework. So if you ask them about things, even just a few years beyond what they're trying to portray, they'll say, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I don't understand what you're talking about, or maybe they'd take a guess at what would happen in the future, but they are locked into their, their character and they know what that character would have known and would not have known and what they would have done under the circumstances. And you know, I've seen people really try to trip them up and really good ones, they just, get a blank look on their face when you start talking about something in the future. Um, so a really good reenactor has filled his mind with the character that he's impersonating. And Paul tells us to do the same thing. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Have your mind be renewed to be like Christ. So our confirmation to the image of Christ comes from the renewal of our minds. And the Holy Spirit is at work and has to help us think like Jesus. But we all need to fill our minds with Jesus too so that we can think and act the way he did. There's a parallel passage to this one in Romans in 1 Peter. Um, so it's not just Paul's ideas. Peter shared these too. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're to prepare our minds for action. And he says part of that is putting off your old ways of thinking, which he calls ignorant. Ignorant, foolish ways of thinking. Um, and put on holy thoughts, because Jesus is holy. I wonder when Peter was writing this, if he was thinking back to an interaction he had with Jesus, when Jesus told his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer and he would die there. Matthew reports, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And, you know, at first glance, I read that and say, whoa, you know, Jesus, that's kind of over the top. I mean, Peter was just doing what anybody would have done. I mean, if you had your friend who was depressed, who was going to do something obviously silly, you would, you would challenge him. You, know, you might say things like, look, Lord, yes, Jerusalem is a dangerous place for you right now, but you don't need to go there, right? Let's hang out in Samaria or in the wilderness for a while and let things blow over. Besides, you know, you can calm the seas. Surely you could calm the hearts of the Pharisees as well. And probably if you stopped calling them whitewashed tombs, things would get better and they wouldn't be so angry. Um, you know, is, isn't that what you would have said if you were Peter, if you were in the same situation? And, and Peter certainly said dumber things and only got a loving scolding for those things. So why is he called Satan here? and told to 
basically get out of Jesus' face. And why? Clearly, Jesus saw him as the mouthpiece of Satan, who's the tempter and the father of lies. And I think Jesus reacted because he saw a threat of his mind being filled with thoughts that were fleshly thoughts rather than godly thoughts. Jesus needed to set his mind on the joy of the redemptive task that he'd been given to do. He needed to set his mind on the love of the Father who would go with him until that final horrible moment when he couldn't. And he needed to set his mind on the blessings of obedience. He didn't need to fill his mind with the easy way out or with easy ways to disobey or ways to avoid the suffering that was required. That isn't what he needed. So Peter's comments, which seem reasonable from a human perspective, were totally out of line with God's will. They, they were fleshly. They were not of the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. When Paul says flesh here, he's not talking about lustful thoughts or gratifying our appetites or those sorts of things. He's referring to earthly wisdom, to our natural way of thinking. That, that's the flesh he's talking about, just our natural response. And this fleshly way of thinking is in contrast to godly wisdom, to having a mindset on the things of the Spirit. How do we know what godly wisdom is? Because again, we look at Peter's interaction with Jesus, they, that looks pretty reasonable. That's probably the advice that we would have given a friend. But it totally missed the mark. If he was trying to put on his inner Jesus and perfectly reenact how Jesus would have responded, he totally missed it. So how do we know what Jesus thinks? Well, the answer is, of course, by Scripture. And the Scripture is our ultimate source of truth. And by the Holy Spirit who's within us, quickening that truth to us and revealing that truth to us. But Scripture is the only authoritative source for learning the truth about God. Paul said in 2 Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. To that training in righteousness that's really essentially being conformed to the image of Christ, right? So scripture is useful for training us, for conforming us to the image of Christ. In fact, it's the only tool that we can confidently use in our putting on of Jesus, in renewing our minds to be Christ-like. It's probably just because it's the thing that occupies my mind these days, but I have a number of examples around the death of Ezra that, that where the Lord did bring scriptures to mind in important ways and reshaped um, my thoughts. Uh, my natural thought you know, was, I think like all of us, to wallow in self-pity and think, you know what, this really isn't fair. You know, it's not right that I as a parent should have to bury a child. It's, and here I am, you know, I'm, a, I'm a servant of God, we love God, we've walked with him. Why should we suffer the agony of a child's death? I don't deserve this. And the Holy Spirit pretty quickly said, 
you know what? The grief associated with the death of a child is just the real horror of sin. It's just the real cost of sin. Um, the wages of sin is death. If you think about Adam and Eve, they were warned that if they ate the fruit, um, they would die. And the very first death after they ate the fruit was the death of their son, murdered by another son. I mean, what could be more awful than that? They expected the impact of their sin to be on them, that they would die. But the terrible price was the death of their own son. And that's the same terrible price that God had to pay. My sin cost God the death of his only son. God had to offer him as a sacrifice in order to pay the cost of my sin so that I could be redeemed. So just the consequences of sin are hideous and painful. My sin is hideous and full of agony. And at the moment, our family may be experiencing more of the ugliness of that than some, but it's definitely not more than I deserve. In fact, my sin is more horrible than anything I've experienced. So I can't say to God, you know what, I don't deserve this. That doesn't take away the pain or the grief, but God also reminded me in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We have no greater friend than the Lord. And he wounds us sometimes. But he wounds us out of the faithful, his faithful love for us. He knows what we need and he brings it to us. In fact, if you look through history, most of his faithful servants are wounded in some way. Um, you know, whether you think of Paul, who was arguably the greatest evangelist ever, wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, and yet he had all sorts of hardships and suffers, uh, sufferings and this thorn in the flesh and ultimate, ultimately gave his life for the gospel. Or, you know, more modern, think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Here's this woman who's been paralyzed from the neck down for 50 years, who's done more than most to spread the gospel and to advance God's kingdom. Um, but she suffered in those ways. So if God's wounds are what take me closer to him, if that's the narrow road that leads to life for me and my family, then, then bring it on. You know, on the other side, we have Satan, our arch enemy, who lavishes us with kisses and with comforts and with ease so that we can drift away from God. But God brings the hard things, the wounds to drive us deeper into him. So faithful are the wounds of a friend. And there was other stuff too. When um, we went to collect Ezra's belongings, pretty much all the valuable things, all the keepsakes, the things that we really cared about were gone. Um, custom knives that Stephen had made for him, his competition bow, they were just, they were gone. And we pretty much knew that was going to be the case. Um, and, but it still, you know, felt like a violation and a, and a hurt. And, you know, I was sitting stewing over some of those things um, and the Holy And uh, I guess with that, there was also a number of lies that were told, a um, number of untruths. And I was wrestling with those lies and with this stuff. And, and the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, you know, you're all worked up over these lies, but are you telling the truth about me? And I was immediately convicted. Um, he brought to mind... Proverbs or Psalm 37, which is 40 chapters or 40 verses of, of good stuff, but here's just some excerpts. He starts off, "Fret not yourself because of evildoers, 
Do not be envious of wrongdoers. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret yourself. It only tends to evil. For the evildoer will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on, the wick, on when the wicked are cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. So I wasn't telling the truth to a watching world in my fretting. The Lord says he's my stronghold and he's my salvation. But I was acting like I had no one but myself to defend myself. I was fretting when God was saying, you've no reason to fret, I'll take care of this. God promises justice. I was acting like there was no justice unless I took matters into my own hands. I, I was getting angry when God says not to because I have no reason to be angry. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you think about that, there is nothing more frightening in all of creation to me than the wrath of God. My wrath, no matter what I could do, is puny by comparison. And God says, if you leave the people who wronged you to me, I'll deal with it. They will face the wrath of God if they don't repent. And I honestly, as that sunk in, I felt so sorry for the people who maybe did these things that I... I had to pray for them, pray for mercy for them, because to experience the wrath of God is just unthinkably horrible. It's not to say that God is horrible, but being separated from him and being the target of his wrath would be. So I'm not saying that, hey, you know, I processed through these things, I got it all figured out, I've got the Christ fully on, I fully put him on. It's, no, it's not a once and done, and I constantly have to check my heart and my mind um, because they're not irreversibly changed. But I can renew my mind with the truth of Scripture and keep bringing it back. And I think that's what it means for us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make no provisions for the flesh, to gratify its desires. So I need to continually work at putting on the, the Lord Jesus, training my mind to think like Him. I need to embrace Scripture as true and applicable to me and, and stop making excuses about why, well, this doesn't really apply to my situation or, you know, I'm justified to go contrary to Scripture. No, God's Word is true. And if I'm living and th thinking differently than what Scripture says, then I'm living a lie. To think contrary to Scripture, in the words of Romans 8, is to set my mind on the flesh, which is death. Or I have the option to set my mind on the spirit, which is life and peace. So obviously, to set our minds on the spirit, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to think and act like him, we need to know what he's like, what he says about himself, how he would respond, his worldview. And the whole Bible is rich and full of pictures and promise, pictures of God and promises that we can rely on. But the Gospels are especially a good place for us to start in studying Jesus. And if we look at what Jesus says and think about them and, and why he says those and what he does, those will transform us 
a lot into his character. And if you read through, you know, there's a lot of things that make a lot of sense. That's why pretty much universally he's accepted as a wise teacher. But, but then every once in a while he says something that's like, what is that? You know, and just, you know, it just seems dumb and totally out of context. And Jesus, you must be from another world because you just don't get it. And I'm convinced that Jesus doesn't say and do dumb things, really. So when those things hit us that we look at and say, boy, that doesn't make sense, the issue isn't Jesus. The issue is me. The issue is that my mind is still fleshly, and I don't really understand the kingdom of God the way he does. So that should be cause for me to, to wrestle with those passages more and say, Jesus, help me to have your mind in this. Help me to understand what you were thinking about, what you were seeing, so that my mind can be aligned with yours so that I can put on um, the inner, my inner Jesus so that I can be a better impersonator of him. So if you're looking at your Bible, you'll recognize that I jumped from the end of Romans 13, 7, where Wake ended all the way to verse 14 about putting on Jesus. And so I jumped over a bunch of verses now we're going to go back and fill in the blanks a little bit. Don't worry, it won't be as long. But, um, so, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Where any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So interestingly, in the parallel passage to this Romans 13 that I referred to earlier in 1 Peter 1, the one about preparing our minds for action and um, not being conformed to our passions of former ignorance, that passage also is tied to an exhortation to love one another. So in that passage we have having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So I think it's no coincidence that both of these passages tie a call to imitate Jesus to the call to love one another. And the passage in Romans 13 probably tells us why. Love is the, f the fulfilling of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He was the very embodiment of God's love for us. And Paul says that if we really love one another, we'll fulfill the law. So it follows that if we really act lovingly towards each other, we're acting like Jesus. We'll be putting on, that, putting on Jesus Christ. John says it like this in 1 John 4, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. If you're acting lovingly, you look like God. You're acting like God. And God abides in him. But this is love perfected in, I'm sorry, by this, love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Did you catch that? When love is perfected in us, as he is, so also are we in the world. In other words, the more perfectly we love, the more we're just like him. The more perfectly we imitate him. The more we have put on our inner Jesus. 
When are we like him? When love is perfected in us. Why does it make us like him? Because God is love. So this, I'm not talking about some weird new age cult of, hey, you know, just love and everything will be wonderful. Love is everywhere. God is everywhere and in everything. He's the spirit of love. That, that's not what this is talking about. But a critical component of the nature of God is his love. He perfectly embodies what it means to love. And Jesus perfectly lives out what it means to love as the Father does. In Philippians, Paul maybe fleshes out a little bit more about what this love looks like in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Again, it's talking about our minds, having the mindset of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, notice the focus here is again on our minds, on the way we think. And we're urged to have the same mindset that Jesus had, the mindset of love, and what does that look like? Is it warm, fuzzy feelings? Maybe sometimes, but not necessarily. It's humbling yourself. Putting others ahead of yourself. Serving radically. Laying down your life for others, whether that's literally or figuratively, but laying down our interests for others. And if you're like me, you read that and say, yeah, I agree, that is what loving looks like. But I'm not there yet. I don't love perfectly. We don't. We're all growing, but we haven't arrived. We're getting better at imitating Jesus, but we're far from perfect. I like what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. So he's rejoicing over these Thessalonians because your faith is growing abundantly. Not that you've arrived but it's growing. You're growing. And the love of e every one of you for each other is increasing. You haven't arrived at perfect love, but it's increasing. You're getting there. He's rejoicing with the Thessalonians because he sees that. He gives thanks to God for them because he sees them growing, not that they've arrived. So none of us have arrived, but we should all be growing. And that growth should be manifested in increased love for each other. Paul closes out Romans 13 in an exhortation about the times. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Beside, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. We have a different perspective than Paul did in his time. I think Paul really believed that Christ would return within his lifetime, 
or certainly within the lifetime of the people that he wrote to. And that's why he says things like, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. He really expected Jesus to return soon. We now have the perspective that it's 2,000 years later and the Lord still hasn't returned. But we should not be lulled to sleep by that. If Paul could say in his day, the night is far spent, how much more is that true today? Salvation, meaning Christ's return to claim his bride, which is the church, that event is certainly nearer than in Paul's day and nearer than when we first believed. You know, world events have certainly been crazy in the past. So I'm a bit slow to say, oh yeah, we're definitely in, in the end, end times. I, I don't know that for sure. But there's enough crazy stuff going on to make me think we might be. And none of us knows the day and the hour. And since that's the case, Paul urges us to step up our game, to increase our obedience to Christ, to put him on better, to be more and more like him, to put off overt sinful behavior. And in that context, Paul made the statement that we focused on today. Put off that sinful behavior and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's urgency behind this call for us to put on Jesus Christ because we want to be found like him. We want to be found in him and doing his work when he returns. And because we're still surrounded by people that Jesus loves who don't yet know him, they need to see him in us. So I urge you and I urge me, let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Um, God, sometimes we love the fleshly stuff too. Lord, I ask that you would help us really to put those things off. And Lord, to allow your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts or to make us more and more like you and to join with him in that work of, of putting on your character, of uh, studying you in scripture and Lord, then applying that scripture to our lives. The, the, the way we live, the way we act uh, would cause the people around us to look at them and say, they must be a Christian. They must be a little Christ because they look like Jesus. Lord, may that be true of us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.